welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. This one is um, with a legend, a legend of the archery industry. I don't. Am I supposed to call you Doctor or Sensei? I don't know. <laughs> I'll answer to anything. <laughs> um, this is none other than Randy Omer, everybody. So I'm uh, I'm excited. It's been a while since since we've talked. We talked briefly about the new bows when they came out. You asked me a few things about the the new Hoyts and I kind of gave you some of my initial feedback on just kind of how I set mine up. Did you end up working on yours at all and kind of get one preliminarily going anyway or? Yeah, I've got a couple of them going. Uh, uh, the new one, both of them are the red works. Uh, I got a turbo and, uh, and, uh, the, the other one, the, the longer one. And, the ultra. Uh, yeah. The ultra that's us. <laughs> what I was trying to think of. <laughs> yeah. And so far I like them both. I haven't, put them through all the paces yet uh but you know in my preliminary testing they've they've uh shot really well i haven't put broadheads on the bows yet to uh see how they perform but i'm sure with what i saw with bill points so that they'll do really well i'm actually surprised that you've got a turbo i'm curious on your thought process behind that well you know i in archery, yeah, this is a complicated question, actually. <laughs> I in stumped archery, you. I uh, love it. <laughs> when I first started in archery, uh, there was some dogma that uh, I found not to be true. And and uh, and I think it's one of the things that actually gave me a little bit of advantage in my competitive uh, shooting is all the written literature uh, was saying certain things about archery that, that I found not to be true. So... I made myself a promise never to get stuck in my own dogma. And I think that's what we do as we get older. Uh, you know, you believe certain things are true just because you've always believed they're true and because other people have told you they're true and not necessarily because it's actually true. So, uh, and I keep hearing from people that people that I respect that, you know, these short bows, uh, low brace height bows just shoot really well. And, you know, I've always professed, um, longer, axle axle bows and and uh you know when i started the longer axle axle bow was 46 inches (laughs) and gradually you know i found myself going shorter and shorter because that's really all that's available and and i think with the new technologies and uh and the improvement in quality control i I think we can get by with that stuff and and to be honest with you uh, i haven't shot a bow this short ever um but i just wanted one to try i don't want to believe my own dogma unless it's true does that make sense so you're you're getting it you're getting it really to keep an open mind at this point you haven't like put the turbos through the ring exactly exactly you know and it and and you know i've shot you know i've i've messed around with low brace height bows before when we were on the speed craze and everything and and you know back then i really didn't think they were forgiving at all like if you know if you're shooting at 20 yards and everything's perfect and your form's perfect 
no wind, you know, you shoot well with them and you're going, wow, I could shoot this bow. And then once you get a little tension or any sort of, you know, abnormal footing or whatever, um, shooting uphill, downhill, all of a sudden things start to fall apart pretty fast. So anyway, I'm trying to keep uh, an open mind. And so that's my thought process. Yeah. Plus, well, <laughs> go for two it. Two ounces lighter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Climbing those mountains, right? Yeah, here we go. You're going to act like play the old man card? <laughs> I didn't say that. Hey, what are you saying? <laughs> well, you said you needed a lighter bow. You used to carry the heaviest ones just so you could get an extra workout. Yeah, well, no, you shot the heavier ones because they held steadier. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I have to compromise now. Well, my thought process <clears throat> behind a lot of these new bows is one, you know, back when back when short bows were, um, you know, really popular, and I think back of the one that I shot um, that really stood out and that had a lot of momentum at the time was that High Country Excalibur. But right. that bow was, I mean. It's it's almost like you can't even really put it in the same category as what our compound bows are now today because the risers were like 14 inches long. <laughs> it was the shortest riser and it was just all limb and those things you know all of the all of the force and and really the energy out of the bow was coming from the limbs more so than the cam design. The cams were really small and it was just a lot of forward thrust, a lot more string oscillation then. And, you know, you, you bit yourself even wearing a polo shirt out on the course shooting those shorter brace height bows. And that's just not the case now. You know, we, we've got a well, lot, lot longer riser. We've got way bigger cams. And where the strings come off the cams, the overall length, like the string angle, the string angle on my... Um, my 31 inch RX1 is actually the exact same as like my 34 inch Hoyt from four years ago, the actual string angle. And the 34 inch, my Ultra, that string angle is equivalent to a 36 inch bow that I might have shot five or six years ago. Right. And I think you hit on something very key there. Um, without actually mentioning it, uh, when you have longer risers, you've got much, much more stability. The limbs are one of the things that can vary from shot to shot a little bit because they're kind of flopping in the breeze. Uh, that's not an engineering term, but there's a <laughs> lot more length flopping in the breeze there than uh, with a riser, a stable riser, especially what we have in the Hoyts now. I mean, so you've got stability for much of the length of the overall length of the bow, uh, especially with the parallel limb design. So you've got all that stability with fairly short limbs, and so you don't have as much wiggling going on uh, as you do in the, in the older, longer limb bows. Yeah. And the same type of technology is actually kind of rolled over into the Olympic world. Now, you know, a lot, a lot of the bows have longer handles, shorter limb options because the torsional instability in a, in any bow, like you said, is coming from the limbs. And especially when limbs were made out of wood and laminate more so than like now the glass is so much more repetitive but the wood just like anything it varies depending on you know you, one piece of wood could vary to, you know to the neck so that variation wow that's was, impressive so 
so should I start calling you professor if you want to call me doctor of torsional instability? Yes. Wow. Is this John Dudley? Yep. I have a cal- I have a calendar <laughs> that every day I peel it off and it gives me a new word. Today it says tor- torsional like instability. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're just flexing your knowledge there, aren't you? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. But no, I think that I think that's a hundred percent accurate. The thing that I don't like about the turbo to be honest with you, isn't, um, and this goes for not just the Hoyt model. It goes across the board. PSE offers one cam, but you can get it in multiple different let off options or module options to pretty much be able to change your speed. I'm just, I'm more of a lazier shooter on the back end. So, and I feel like people that don't practice adamantly all the time with a very, very dynamic shot to where they're literally staying, at 90% of their shooting capacity throughout the year, I think people like that really struggle when, you know, especially a whitetail hunter that's sitting in a tree and he gets, you know, one time a month to pull his bow back. Um, those types of cams that are more eager to take take that string away, they're just, I think that's where the uh, quote-unquote unforgiveness comes from. It's not from the fact that it has a shorter axle-axle length or that it has a shorter brace height. I really feel like it just comes from some people, you know, and like Darren Cooper was this way. He always loved that spiral cam on his target bows. And I could just never, I could never shoot that spiral cam if I shot it above about 55 pounds because the valley was just too short in my draw length. And I just felt like when I got a little bit of tension, I would just prematurely creep without knowing it. So I just like to have you know, that kind of forgiveness built in for when I get a little bit tight in my shop. Well, yeah, as you and I both know, uh, you know, uh, a lower let off bow for a target shooter, uh, tends to be a little crisper and more forgiving. Again, if you are have perfect form, um, but for a hunting situation, you know, you've got to, you've got to think about all the other variables that come into play you know it's funny that you mentioned that cam i tried to hunt with that cam one year <laughs> and, uh, and uh, i thought you know nobody it just man it just shot so good and so i thought okay i'm gonna hunt with this thing well i went out and there's really big mule there i mean it was a 200 inch mule there and and i got out in front of him and he he walked by at about 20 yards and uh and i pulled back and I was waiting for him to come out from behind a tree and he came out from behind the tree and uh, I I was at full draw and all of a sudden the uh, bow pulled the string away from me and made me fire my release and I shot the branch about five feet in front of me. Oh God. <laughs> my arrow just stuck there quivering. So uh, yeah, that was first and last time I ever did that. <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, I did a similar thing back when I was I was just a teenager. This was before before you knew me as even a teenager. But uh, I bought one of those the very first PSE G forces, and that thing was about as radical as you could get at the time but it was also one of the first bows to shoot like you know like over three it might have been 320 they advertised i can't remember but i bought that thing and i remember i got in a whitetail stand with it and i had never shot it with my hunting clothes on 
And I was probably in the worst whitetail stand you could ever imagine. I actually, my girlfriend's dad owned a marsh and he duck hunted and there was one tree in the middle of this marsh, but it was the only thing I had permission to to hunt. So I put a tree stand in it and I'd literally just sit out there like a dang pelican on top of a, uh, a pier pole in the middle of this marsh. And then weeks and weeks and weeks went by and finally this buck comes walking right down the path that I had walked through this marsh in and out of this stand every day. And this thing just, I mean, it read the script as perfect as you could ever read one for what a deer should do to give you the perfect shot. And I just started tugging on that bow as hard as I could. Finally got the bow back. And when I shot, it looked like a pillowcase exploded. I blew about half a pound of uh, tree bark fleece off my sleeve from from that six inch brace height and that big puffy Gore-Tex fleece jacket, windstopper jacket I had. And yeah, it was the same thing. I thought, man, these bows are just not made to like hunt with. And yeah, I think, I think some of those experiences is where that dogma comes from, but some parts of them, we need to make sure we don't forget. Well, no, exactly. But you know, you got to keep an open mind. You got to try all the new things, uh, you know, especially if you're, you know, like us preaching to the the rest of the bow hunting community about what's good and what's not good. And if you really don't know, you shouldn't keep preaching. So <laughs> that's why I try to try everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's good that you do. Um, so when do you, when do you really start getting after prepping for, you know, knowing which hunting rig you're really going to go with for the year. Cause there, there has been years where you've shot the previous year's model just because you were so comfortable with it. So, I mean, when do you start putting in that time? Well, usually I, I, uh, I don't get my bows, uh, at the very, you know, in the fall, like, like most guys do, you know, uh, most, uh, sponsored cheaters or whatever, because I want to hunt the whole season with the same bow I, I just don't like to change i'm not like you throw a bow together and go hunt with it i i've had too many <laughs> i'm probably not as smart as you i've made too many stupid mistakes i i want a bow that's well seasoned and so what i typically do is shoot my bow from the previous year all the way through the honey season say the end of january and then and then i'll go ahead and order my new bow so about about this time of year <clears throat> like i got mine like first of march or, or whatever and i set them up and so i start shooting but uh, when I really start shooting every day is in, in the summer, I'll usually start mid May and, uh, just shoot every day. And I usually have two bows I'm working on. And then I'll just, I do try to, you know, I've pretty much shot a new bow, I think every year for the past eight or 10 years, but I try to shoot the no, new bow just so, cause I always have people calling me and asking me what, what I think. So I like to shoot the new stuff. So I, I really understand it. I usually try two different bows and then, uh, whichever one shoots the best and is most forgiving uh you know and and it's interesting sometimes you'll have uh, two bows and one will shoot the best if you're just standing there and and shooting arrows uh and and uh not having any you know adverse situations um and another bow might be more forgiving for you know shooting from your knees shooting around you know twisting around that sort of thing so you know i tried all that kind of stuff and and uh shoot uphill, downhill, uh, where I practice in the summer. I've got right outside my little archery room door, I've got a, you know, 
37 degree slope. So I can shoot uphill, straight downhill, and you just get a real good feel for the forgiveness of the bow. Yeah. What's some of the first things that you do? I mean, do you do you have kind of the same routine, what you go through when, you know, putting your rest on there and your knock point sets and kind of where your your baseline is? But when you really get into trying to see what that bow is doing compared to the last year's model, do you typically try to make it work with the arrow configuration that you've already kind of used in the past and that you're happy with or do you just say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna wipe this chalkboard completely clean and start out with you know what should i go with here no you know i've taken literally years to get what i consider to be the perfect hunting arrow and uh just doing this that and the other trying all the different arrows uh you know with the shooting machine at 100 yards and and different broadhead combinations and fletching combinations and um and so I, I know what arrow I'm going to shoot. I, I already know what arrow I'm going to shoot. It's the same one I shoot the year before, unless they come out with a new arrow and I have to try that one. But uh, I'm, I'm going to shoot the exact same arrow. And what I've found, John, is that if, if a bow is unwilling to shoot an arrow well, that you know is, 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 is properly spined for that bow. If it's unwilling to shoot that arrow well, and you have to try different spines of arrows um, to get the bow to shoot well, that bow is never going to be a bow that is as forgiving as a bow that, that when you set it up, you put the arrow that you know should work in it, and it shoots bow at all. Um, you know, I've... Back in the day when, you know, I'd just get one bow or whatever, uh, I'd take that bow and you'd go through all sorts of contortions to try to get that thing to work, and you'd finally get it to shoot well. Um, those bows were never good bows. So um, I don't give a bow, and, and, you know, the quality control, especially at Hoyt, is just so phenomenal. I just don't get bad bows anymore, hardly. But you do, periodically. I don't care what manufacturer it is. Something's going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. And you're going to get a bow that just doesn't want to cooperate, and and I don't, I just don't spend any time with them. I mean, you know, it's like going on a really bad date. <laughs> you know, you're not going to ask her out a second time. <laughs> You've got the Terry Ragsdale syndrome. I remember, uh, I remember one time I was at PSE, and I was shooting there with Frank Pearson and Randy Chapel and. Terry was there shooting with Michelle and Terry would literally disappear for about 30 or 45 minutes. He'd come out with a bow and he'd shoot like three arrows with it. And then he would just leave and come back with like a whole new one. And he'd be like, that one wouldn't shoot. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) He was such an aimer that he had a zero tolerance policy for a bow that wanted to have any movement. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty hilarious. I've never seen anything well, like that. Know, Terry's a smart guy, and and uh, the thing is, is is bows. Each bow, it, it's like an individual. People think that every bow that comes off the assembly line is exactly the same. And you know, back then, I'm guessing you were 20 years ago at that point, um, from the names you used and where you were. But uh, 20 years ago. Um, 
that was definitely the case. The quality control just wasn't there, and you kind of had to get that magic combination of all the different components to where, um, you know, all the tolerance is kind of stacked in the right direction. And uh, that's definitely, I remember when I was shooting for TSC, you know, again, 20-some-odd years ago, and uh, I would get some bows that just shot phenomenally well, but then I got some that just would not shoot at all. So, uh, and I think that's true for all men. I'm not picking on PSE, but I think at that point, it's true for all manufacturers, the quality control and the technology just wasn't there. And so, yeah, but now it's not nearly, nearly, nearly as bad. The archers now are so spoiled in that, you know, uh, they, almost all bows, you know, of any quality are very forgiving and, or, or shoot well anyway, uh, are very accurate and, and the quality control is there. So, um, they don't have to go through all the contortions that we were going through with all the string stretch and the limb cracks and everything else oh, that we God. dealt with on a daily basis back in the old 3D days. Yeah, that was, um, I don't even think, everything. I don't think people would even, I don't, th- I think a lot of people, one would quit archery <laughs> if they had to go through that. But yeah, you had to, I think I've never even thought of that. I think part of why that generation of archers has such such good knowledge base about how bows work is because we broke them every tournament. <laughs> At, well, the thing is, is I spent, literally, I spent 80% of my time, my practice time, the, the time that I allocated to archery, I spent 80% of my, percent of my time working on equipment and 20% of my time shooting. Um, and now I would, I would say that I work Oh geez, ten percent of my time yeah. mm-hmm. on my equipment, and of course I was competing a lot heavier then. But uh, and you know perfection, I was seeking perfection, and and uh, but now I spend so much more time just shooting. And I think that's true for most archers nowadays. They get a bow, it shoots good, and and it stays good. Back then, things just constantly changed with the bow. Yeah. Yes. And like you said, so many different things. Limbs, I mean, oh my gosh. I, I don't even want to know how many high country limbs I went through. Strings. Oh yeah, I would, just order, I would just order, uh, you know, three sets of extra limbs <laughs> to match my <laughs> And then you could just swap, switch out limbs, you know, as, as things, uh, you know, as things changed. Yeah. What, um, I'm trying to think back. You know, it seemed like, it seemed like once you had a setup working for the 3D season, I almost felt like you didn't really play around with that much once you had one going. Were you just trying to keep no, the one I, going that you had? I mean, you, you shot the same setup for a long time. Well, no, I, if I found something that really worked, I'd do But uh, oftentimes I'd have several bows of the same color that looked the same. Uh, and and what, what I would try to do is just keep whichever one shot the best. Yeah. Uh, but it looked like I had the same bow and, and perhaps I didn't. Um, and, and, uh, you know, back then things changed so frequently. It, it was very, very important to have a backup bow, um, you know, that you could shoot the second day if you needed to. Yeah. You know, people, people ask me what the one thing that stands out as a difference when I switched to Hoyt. And this isn't, necessarily a totally fair comment to other bow companies now because you know it's jesus you know i don't even know how long it's it's you know 10 years ago since i've been traveling and competing but back when i was 
traveling a lot with my Matthews, and this was the case for everybody. So if you're listening, this was kind of the case for everybody. But you know, I was used to traveling with two bows, and sometimes if I were if I was going internationally for you know two weeks at a time or more at multiple events, there's times where I traveled with three, and um, and most of the change, like Randy said, came from material more so than um, and actually the one thing that really stunk for me back then was especially because I was an employee and I had Derek literally right next door in my office just cracking his whip on me about every single time I tried to sneak in a set of winner's choice strings that Slinkard built for me <laughs> he would, <laughs> he would he'd come in he'd be like that's not, that's not our servings and I'd be like oh man so I would I was trying to do my best at you know work with factory strings and there was continual change you had to do that but when i when i switched to hoyt within probably the first year i just got to the point where i remember traveling with a single bow case to tournaments i would just be like i you know with a good set of strings and cables on here this thing isn't changing and i'm the same you know i actually went on a few hunts way back then in the early 2000s where I would take two hunting bows if I went on, you know, if I was up in the middle of nowhere, I would take two hunting bows with me. I I wouldn't even, I'd probably look at you strange if you asked me if I was going to do that now because I just, the dependability is just at a whole different level. It's not even the same. Yeah, it is. And just think of all those young guys who are missing out on all that, you know, all the insecurities <laughs> that we had. <laughs> well, what what is your what is your final arrow? I know I've asked this before, but I, I'm, uh, it's I'm a, forgetting. It's an injection, and uh, I was shooting the AC injection, but I I've, I've changed. I'm shooting just the pure carbon injection, and um, I add about fifty grains to the front of it, and I. Um, and uh, then I've got the, uh, the you know, the Ulmer Edge is what I've been shooting and, and uh, uh, for the last, I don't know, six years or however long it's been out. Um, and and I shoot, you know, I shoot either four or six fletchings, fairly small, low-profile fletchings. Which one? And uh, I shoot the A. The, the, the Pro Pretty Max? much small, the 1, 1.6. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really small. Really? Um, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It, I it, mean, I uh, could see like a six fletch PM two point or something like that. Two nope. point the two point You're shooting even a shorter. Well, you're shooting a slightly shorter, but a higher profile. Yeah, it's, it's not very high profile. It's a Plasta Flex Max. Plasta Flex Max. Anyway, um, it's uh, it's 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 it has plenty of steering. And, uh, you know, I put a pretty good, uh, offset on it, uh, helical. So, you know, it, it, uh, steers the arrow very, very well. I'm very pleased with it. It doesn't seem to drift much in the land. And, uh, you know, and if you're shooting through brush, you know, that some of those high profile fletchings always warn you because basically you've got a total of whatever, two and a half, three inches of, of hole that you've got to shoot through for not to, to, to have your fletching not hit, hit a branch. Whereas with the lower profile fletchings you're less likely to bump a, a branch or a leaf or something when you're shooting 
so are you shooting the are you shooting just the little the pro max the small pro max that's 1.7 yes okay okay I think they, they call it the 16 but it's yeah yeah it's um yeah it's the we we have those and and i actually shot those as a four fletch um a couple years ago on an fmj and i i mean and actually the year that i shot that i was shooting the ulmer edges and they flew really well with that so are you still do you still have kind of a little stockpile of the 632nd ulmer edges then no, and they aren't, actually aren't six thirty seconds. There, well, I mean, they're 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 sixes, but they're not. Uh, you know, they've got a, their own their own uh, thread count. Um, but yeah, but I actually shot the new prototype of, of the old bridge this year, and my son killed his giant bull with those, and I killed both my bucks with those. Are you going to bring that new back? Ones. Are you guys going to get it get it going uh, again? Yeah, it'll it, it's gonna it's supposed to come out this summer. Oh, it will. Okay, who's gonna have it? Yeah, is Rusty gonna well, do it or? I don't know. No, no, no. I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I mean he's still involved, but he's. Uh, it's gonna be a different manufacturer, and uh, it'll. I don't know if they put word out yet that they're releasing it. I assume if you haven't heard about it, they haven't. But it's a big manufacturer. You'll be pleased when you hear him bring it out. Well, I just text you. I'm wondering how pleased I'm going to be. Very. Very. <laughs> uh, the, uh, actually, uh, you know, there was nothing wrong with the original broadhead, but it's uh, the prototypes I shot last year. Uh, more, they just look more space-age, sleek. <laughs> really cool. Really cool looking and very, very, very good tolerances and sharpness and everything else you would expect out of this manufacturer everything is perfect yeah that's awesome well that'll be good yeah that'll be a dynamite setup my i'll i'll tell you what um i i actually shoot the five millimeter arrows a lot and what i like about them is a couple different things i know that um the micro diameters have definite advantage for i know what you you really like ballistic superiority i think i mean and when it comes to drift obviously there's going to be advantages because it's a smaller diameter but i do like the option of being able to shoot a standard insert which the only way to do it now is almost with more of like a half out system for that which i'm right. not which i'm not a big fan of and the reason i'm not is because my arrows are already long so, you know, I, when I start factoring in having an inch longer insert than the broadhead on front, next thing you know, I have a, you know, over a 30 inch or better full length arrow. At that point, my drift is almost, you know, there's kind of a wash between that length versus that one millimeter diameter, but with a shorter arrow shaft. Um, so I, I really choose the five millimeter. I like that size, but I also, um, I also really like the strength in that X knock more so than, um, and mainly because I like shooting lighted knocks. And, um, so if you're a lighted knock shooter, some of the lighted knocks that go in those micro diameter shafts, they get pretty, they get pretty, you know, they're, they're flimsier. There's just less material. Um, and I just find that having a very, very stiff knock is super important to accuracy 
And I mean, what do you what do you do with that? Are you shooting? Well, no, you, you know, you got it. And the thing is, is as you and I learned very early on, you know, your arrows would start your groups would start expanding a little bit after you shot your arrows, maybe twenty times each, and uh, you uh, you switch knocks out, and all of a sudden your groups are tighten up. Uh, plastic knocks knocks are, are malleable. You know, it's not like they're made out of metal. They're going to start flexing more, and they're going to change, and they'll actually become looser in the shaft. Uh, so, yeah, I'm with you there. However, one of the things that I found is is if the throat of the notch knock is fairly close to the the shaft, meaning that there's not a lot of plastic between the actual shaft of the arrow and where your string sits. Right. That change isn't nearly as significant. So my biggest thing is not so much the diameter of the knock, it's the amount of, the length of plastic between where the throat of the knock is. Right. And uh, and that's why I shot those, uh, I can't remember the name of the knocks I shot back when I was competing, but they're very, very, very short throat. And I found that they stayed consistent. So I, you know, I'd have to argue, um, with you on on your chef's selection because I uh, with the injection system and the thread system I was afraid that there would be failures there and I've been shooting that particular system since it since it came out I can't remember exactly how long it's been eight years maybe um, and I have never had a failure and I've shot lots of trees and lots of rocks and uh, and obviously now. Uh, when you shoot a rock, things are going to go <laughs> terribly wrong. Uh, but of all the trees I've shot <laughs> and all the dirt I've shot, I my biggest fear with that, you know, with that internal uh, uh, insert was that there would be breakage at the, the front end of the insert or the back end of the insert, or that because it's you know it's a six diameter on the on the the. Uh, on the threaded portion of, of the, the broadhead, that there would be breakage there. And I found, because it kind of slips into the shaft there, I have not found any issues at all. And I really haven't heard of any. Uh, and, and I'm sure there's people out there that uh, have had failures there. But that was my biggest fear. So I really don't like outserts or half outs, whatever you want to call them, because, you know, you kind of are stacking tolerances there. And I think it's, it's a little more difficult, and I haven't shot them in a long time, so that they're they're uh, they're probably a lot better than when I shot them. But when I tried them, and I've only tried them one time, uh, there was a I had a real difficulty in getting them to be concentric uh, with the broadheads. You know, the warrior broadheads that's been true. Yeah. Um, so I, I would much rather have that broadhead actually inside the shaft, like it is. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah, you know, when you're shooting the injection system, your broad is actually inside the shaft. And so, and you've got a much shorter uh, system there. And it's very deeper in the shaft. And so, man, I just don't have any concentricity issues. And then with the knocks that, that, that bother you, um, you know, you'll notice that uh, the uh, the knocks, if, you know, and you, you probably want to change your knocks every, every year, but, or depending on how much you shoot, but really, if if, uh, if the knock has a throat that's fairly deep, close to the shaft, I just don't think it's an issue. Yep, yep. Well, 
Are you shooting? Are are you shooting a lighted knock? Or are you shooting the the knocks that no. come with the air? Right. So the see that's the difference. The the knock that comes standard on the Easton injection is a very good, probably, probably one of the best Easton knocks they've got. I mean, when it comes to how rigid it'll be, short and accurate. Um, you know, it's probably it's probably as good as like one of the pin knocks on on an X10. But like I said, for hunters that like lighted knocks, which I do, um, you know, those batteries, the, the, the system, the way they go in, they just start to, you know, they start to get a little bit more flexible. And I've just found over time, if you have a knock of any brand and a lot of people, you know, buy, go to a store and they'll just buy a pack of knocks because they're, they're cheaper necessarily in bulk, you know. AAE makes a very good, a very good plastic product, and the knocks, they stay, the stiffness stays the same the longest. Some of these other brands that are out there, they just, they completely. It doesn't matter how good the arrow and bow can, you know, combination is. That point right there absorbs so much energy at the release of the string that if it isn't rigid it just completely changes how that thing performs. I mean, instantly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Let me ask you this question, uh, because I'm curious. Uh, Do you shoot lighted knocks for the camera, or do you shoot it for recovery? Well, I would say even if I didn't film, I would certainly shoot lighted knocks. Just because finding finding the arrow is is definitely it helps and here you know i lost um years years ago when i got my i got permission on the first ever big big farm in wisconsin to hunt and uh derek was actually a little mad about it because it was it bordered his the farm he got permission on (laughs) so we were hunting the same bucks and uh i remember I was in my stand one afternoon and the, this coyote came out and it, it went out in this in this this alfalfa field and it started howling. And it was yipping and howling and I I ranged it and it was, you know, it was out there. It was a poke and I thought I'm just going to smoke this freaking thing. So I drew back and launched an arrow at it and shot this coyote and I and by the time I hunted, it got really, really dark, and I thought, well, I'm never going to find that arrow tonight. I'll just come back and come tomorrow. So the next day, I came out at lunch hour and literally parked my car on the edge of the road, and I started to walk to the back of this alfalfa field. And by the time I got about halfway there, the farmer comes bombing out on his four-wheeler, and he holds out the back end of an ACC, and he said, is this yours? And I looked at it, and I said, yeah, that's mine. And he goes... Well, I green chopped that alfalfa back there this morning to feed my cows. And he said, I found this at the bottom of the trough. And he said, what's on the other? Oh, no. Yeah. And he said, what's on the other end of this? He said, are there blades on the other end of this? And I said, yeah, there, there is. And I remember, luckily I found the front piece of that shaft. He clipped it off and luckily the broadhead and front part of that arrow was still in the ground. But he pretty much told me, he said, if I ever find one of your arrows in my piece of equipment again, you won't be hunting here anymore. And really, 
that moment right there, I did a lot of tips on that for people. Like one way to lose your hunting ground is to not find your arrows. So finding the arrow is definitely one of the advantages. And then the next advantage is, you know, just being able to confirm where you hit an animal. I know that there's so many times I've been successful on recovery simply because my mind had a mental picture of, I hit that deer back. I'm, I know that he could be down right now, but I'm playing it safe. I'm going to come back in the morning. And if, if you don't have a lighted knock or if you, you know, some of your hunting's different, you have people, you know, you're able to watch things a lot further. A lot of times you might have a spotter, but you know, and some of this close corridor stuff that I do, you just, I need confirmation of where that, that hit is. And I think a lighted knock just really, really helps, helps that confirmation and I've also found deer where, you know, where that arrow is, um, where that arrow is still lodged in. Actually, last year when I was in Hawaii hunting axis, I shot a really big buck on the last day at last light. That's that brush there is just so hard to find things in if you don't have elevation. And I remember just roaming around endlessly, and I thought, well, this is never going to work. And I ended up climbing up on this hill, and I got up on this really big rock, and all of a sudden. I could just see the knock down there. Once it was dark, I'm like, well, there it is. And went oh, wow. went down to the arrow, and, and the arrow was in the animal, and I'm like, bam, there's my buck. And, oh, and wow. So that's my reasoning behind it. And, you know, I think, I think depending on your type of hunting, I think it could be a, a big advantage. And I, I, think, I think there's an argument for ethics, too. Guys that are hunting by themselves aren't really totally sure of maybe – how well they really shoot in a hunting situation. Maybe if they they're new and have never really had to perform under pressure. And, you know, I think having that shot confirmation when that moment of truth happens is just so valuable. Well, I'm, I'm going to recommend him to a good friend of mine. He's, uh, he hunts in Colorado with me on several occasions. And in this one particular little, little bowl up in the high country, he's missed several deer and, and whenever I hunt mule deer, I'm always, you know, I'm always in my stocking feet when I'm making my stock. And I told him I'm not hunting in that basin anymore <laughs> because I can't take my shoes out because they're too sharp. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, see, if, he, if it would probably, there's probably not many bucks left in there after that. Once it gets dark, it probably looks like a Christmas tree in there if he would have lighted knocks. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've had that too. I've had friends that go out with lighted knocks, and you can't necessarily see them that good in the day. And then uh, at nighttime, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, God, this field looks, <laughs> this field's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I actually, uh, I've got How a, long do they stay lit? I did a contest with the, with the nocturnal knocks. I did a contest one time where I turned one on because I think the package says like 70 hours. So I turned one on and I did a contest. I said, whoever guesses to the closest hour how long this is going to stay lit um, will win. You know, And I forgot what I gave away, but I gave away something good. And we put that actually in our bedroom. We put it in this like kind of down in a glass so that we could see that it was lit but not mood lighting yeah exactly mood lighting and uh that thing went almost a month it was still 
freaking glowing. Finally, Sharon's like, whoever voted the longest time, just give the guy the prize because everyone's forgot about this contest by now. And she's like, I'm sick of waking up seeing that light. <laughs> some of them, if, if they're fresh, some of them just get this dull glow. They won't be super bright, but there's like just this dull glow that's there for a long, long time. And I've actually, uh, I practice with them all the time for di- for different reasons. One of the reasons is I I always practice how I play. So if I have n- lighted knocks from last year that were still in my quiver, those are kind of the ones that I practice with. Um, and honestly, if I had a dollar for how many times I've either gone from 20 to 100 and not move my sight or gone from 100 to 20 and not move my sight and airballed one into my neighbor's back pond bank um i I always have to just wait for it to get dark and freaking slither over in my neighbor's yard and pull my arrows out of his out of his cattails (laughs) you know or i shoot in colorado a same thing my 100 yard target's right up against my neighbor's property he's got some old outbuildings out there and uh and I do the exact same thing. You know, you kind of slither over, and I have to slither over in the in the light so I can see the arrow. And I try, you know, I've, I've tried. I've been up there for years, and I've always tried to, uh, you know, make sure that, that I find every arrow so they're not afraid <laughs> to walk right out there. And no matter how hard I tried, there's a couple I couldn't find. And then uh, last summer I went up there. And uh, one of my arrows was sticking in the top of my bale. <laughs> That's the day it sounds. Yep. They didn't say anything. They just <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what. Now that I'm a farmer, and uh, I mean, I, I'm not a farmer, farmer, but you know, I've got, I've got, um, I share, I row crop um, with a buddy of mine that's my age, and we share crop together, and um, I've got a hundred horse John Deere, and. I had to replace a tire from an antler, and it, that's like taking a punch to the guts. I mean, if I had if I ran over a broadhead on one of these tires for what they cost and they cost to get changed, I would be so mad at myself. So for that reason alone, when I'm out there, you know, jacking around and launching arrows around, I think I think there's good ethics to it. I think there's really good ethics to being able to recover your arrow, not worry about a farmer finding them. Um, definitely, you know, sometimes, and you know this, what what type of sign you have on your arrow after a hit almost tells you more than what the hit did itself. Because when an arrow, when the animals are turning and they're moving quick, you know, sometimes you'll be like, that thing went in perfect. But then, at least for me with a camera, I can go back in slow motion. I'm like holy cow, that thing is almost inverted. You know, he's ducking and turning so hard, even though it looked like it went in good, it's it's coming out so low or it's coming out back. But when you find the arrow, you can be like, well, I, you know, you look at it and it's like, well, this arrow is kind of green. I mean, or, you know, this is liver blood. So being able to find that arrow when sometimes without the lighted knock, you may just not be able to do it, um, I think is just... I think it's just good practice. I mean, I think it's good practice for a new hunter to be able to to have those that type of education and intel. Well, the real reason I've never done it is truly is because I just couldn't imagine how those knocks with all the stuff they've got going on 
could be as accurate as a, as a regular knock. And that's the main reason I haven't done it. Uh, but if you tell me they're as accurate as a as a regular knock, then I might have to try it. Well, certain ones, certain ones, yes. Cert, some, some, no. I mean, I've I've had some that um, some brands came out, and I've you know sometimes I walk around like the ATA show or or even our local Deer Classic. Occasionally, I'll walk around in there and kind of just listen to some of the pitches coming out of these guys' booths and um you know i'll bring them home and then it's just like man have they shot these things i mean it's and i had um i i had pellegrino on the podcast um about a week and a half ago and him and i were talking about broadheads and how frustrating it is walking around the ata show and having people give you broadheads and making claims and, you know, Bill kind of said that <laughs> he had one time where a guy had, you know, pretty much just said, you know, this thing hits just like a field point. And Bill said he had just had a long day at the show. He had heard that so many times. And he just looked at the guy and just said, do you actually know what you're saying? Like, can you actually shoot field points together? I mean, <laughs> I can see Bill doing that. <laughs> yeah. He, well, you know, you know, Bill will do it. And, uh. Well, and classic Bill, we had a really great podcast about broadheads and all the different ones we've tested and things like that. And then, you know, our findings and stuff and, and classic Bill, literally four days later, he sends me, my phone just starts buzzing. It's just like, dude, I had, he goes, you got my mind thinking about these broadheads. I had to, I had to find out for myself. And all of a sudden, it's just like, bzz, bzz, bzz. here comes like Bill just jumped in his car, grabbed a bunch of the broadheads we talked about, and just went to down to some place in Texas and just issued a Pellegrino beatdown on some hogs. And he had a full report of like every broadhead angle, shot distance, you know, here's a penetration count. This is how, here's how many steps the pig went after this broadhead, this broadhead. And I'm just like, yeah, classic Bill just goes down and, and drops the gauntlet on about a dozen hogs just to just to kind of prove some of the points that we talked about. So, yeah, I think um, I think certain certain knocks you're going to find you're going to like and then there's going to be ones lighted knocks that you don't. And for me, my selection on my arrow shaft, because I can get a five millimeter to shoot just as good as a four millimeter. And like I said, I, I personally, um, I think a lot of people that don't really know how to customize like inserts and things. Cause I've got some, um, I've got some inserts for the four millimeters that, you know, I've, I've put brass on the end of the insert so that I can get it up to 50 grains like you're shooting. Um, mm-hmm. but some people just don't know how to do some of that stuff. It's intimidating to them and getting them all the exact same. So with the five millimeter, people have the option to get that brass hit insert that breaks off at 50 or 75. And the knock that goes in there is just a better knock, you know, and, and you and I have, you and I dealt with that way back. You know, I know that, you know, you really liked, you shot super 3d knocks on your x7s um mm-hmm. b- back when but you would cut the tails off to make them a little stiffer too mm-hmm. so 
you know, and they just they performed a little bit different than a than a super knock, which is technically the same type of knock. It just had you know a slightly different thickness of material, and the and the throat groove was you know it all like the super knock has kind of like a double click, whereas the the 3D knocks had more of like a single click. So, I think. I think if you do that testing, you'll find out, you know, if you were, if you were destined to shoot lighted knocks, you may end up just saying, well, I mean, and probably knowing you, you're just going to say, well, I don't need a lighted knock, but I'll tell my friend to use them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say a smart ass comment. (laughs) If you just make make good shots, John, you don't need need lighted knocks. Well, I, well. You you just need to learn to shoot is what I'm saying. You've told me that for um, let's see here. Twi- I think I told you that one. I think I told you that one time, <laughs> and I gave you a tool that that helped you. <laughs> yeah. Do you, did you actually think that I would that I would actually put that thing to use, or was it just one of your uh, yeah, you know, one of your rusty ones that you were trying to get out of your were, pouch? Even though you were goofy, I, I knew when you were a teenager, <laughs> you must have been nineteen or twenty years old. You were goofy in a fun sort of way, but. I could tell there was a, a, a deep spark of intelligence there. <laughs> and, and and mainly, you just had a burning desire. So, yeah, that's why I thought you needed a little help, because you were going down a bad road. <laughs> well, the road most people go down of putting a wrist strap on. And, uh, yep. And, you know, what do you, I mean, have you heard people, they now refer to it as, I command shoot? <laughs> Like, can you keep a straight face when people say that? Well, you know what? Um, interestingly enough, um, I think that if you had the capability of, like, I know, say, where, I, I know where you're I going, it, and I agree. I agree. Uh, if you have the ability to control it, which I would say at least ninety nine percent of people will fail but you take you know you take a few people and we know who they are um on their best day on the day they can on their best day are are unbeatable good luck yep but what the the problem is is uh there are extremely few and i would have to say a handful a handful not even a handful that can consider Consistently, not over. They're, they're going to have more up and downs than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, you know, I've heard that the Europeans are actually coaching that, and that, and you, you're way more in touch with that <laughs> than I am. Is that true? Well, yeah. There's certain areas where they do. So I'm kind of. Uh, I don't know if if Team USA sent over a coach, and somehow this is like. A, uh, trying to sabotage a, a conspiracy theory because <laughs> i remember well, how so Matt... everyone knows I, I think some of our listeners some of your listeners may not know what we're talking about we're, t- we're talking about punching the trigger yeah and and that euphemism for that is is uh, commanding the shot i guess i think i think we have to um i think tim gillingham actually has trademarked command the shot so we have to that's that's uh, trademarked by Tim Gillingham. Do you have to pay him a royalty now? I think so. I wasn't gonna name. I wasn't gonna name his name, but uh, you just did. Sorry, Tim. Well, no, actually, he embraces Tim's, it. Tim's the one guy that I know of that good, is probably the most consistent with that. Yeah, I mean, if he's if he's on, 
good luck. I mean, I remember, I remember many a guys that would go on a 3D course after months and months of polishing up what could possibly be the best looking archery form in history, just get their freaking clocks cleaned by potentially one of the most uh, contagious looking punching that you've ever wanted to be around. And, you know, when it comes to just putting points on a board, when it's on, God help you. Well, I, the last time I shot against him, uh, several years ago at the ATA for that 100-yard broadhead shoot, uh, it was he and I, the last, the last <laughs> shot, and, uh, you know, he, he won. I didn't. Yep, yeah. And, <laughs> and he, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to argue with it, because when you get your butt kicked, uh, you really don't have much of an argument. Yeah, I had to shoot against Tim at the Arizona Cup. We came we came to in to meet one another on the way to the to the medal matches. And honestly, it doesn't matter how seasoned of an archer you are, and especially if you're one like me that really prides himself on like not not willing to sacrifice twelve arrows of terrible shooting to in order to win a match. Like I'm just like, okay. If I can't make good shots and walk out of here with my head up, then I shouldn't even be here. But when you go against, like when I stepped up against Tim, I'd be lying if I didn't say like, what is this guy going to do with this thing? Like he's either going to shoot a perfect score and there's nothing I'm going to do about it in this wind, or he might be having one of those days where he's going to self-destruct. And, you know, fortunately for me, I just kind of sat there and just went about blowing my pin all around the target and pulling through the shot and letting the arrows fall where they may, and it was enough. But I've seen times where the conditions are as absolutely as foul as you could ever imagine, and that dude just pulls up. And I mean, we've li- we've lived amongst many of them: Burley, the Coddles. Uh, Remember Dale Keene? He was the probably with his, the Oneida, best with his Oneida Eagle. Yeah, actually, um, you could hear Dale. You could hear Dale. You could you you knew where Dale was at at, at any given time during the tournament, the three D tournament. <laughs> well, you knew he was you at the hear, tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, wait a minute, is someone shooting a twenty two in here? Like, what is that? No, Keen's here. Someone sent me a picture on. Um, someone sent me a private message. And maybe he's listening to this podcast. He sent me a private message about a, three weeks ago. And his profile picture has this huge, he's in this huge American flag uh, button-up shirt or like polo. And I looked at it for a minute and I'm like, is this Dale Keene? And then I said, uh, I go, is this your real name or is this like an alias? And he said, what do you mean? And I just said, dude, you look just like a guy that was called Dale Keene. Remember he always shot that American flag shirt? Yep. <laughs> yeah, him and him and and Tom Crow was another one. Like Tom, Tom was maybe one of the best. You know, I didn't know. To, I thought Tom squeezed. I, I never noticed. I never saw him. You well, know, do the you know Jackie Collard used to always have the that kind of get the heebie-jeebies on occasion, <laughs> or his bow would would uh, kind of flop around during you know while he was aiming. I got. And, uh, he, I never saw. 
you know, I, no, I never saw Tom do that. Well, no, Tom was. Tom, I'm using Tom as an example of he is one of the the maybe possibly one of the only caliper wrist strap shooters that I've seen that's actually sat there and made good shots. And I I personally think if you can shoot a wrist strap caliper release that way and never have anticipation. I, I mean, I think it's probably the most accurate setup there is. But the bottom line is, if you can't keep your pin on the target and go through the process and let that, that surprise shot happen, then the whole system's flawed. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's a, you know, the thing is, is when you're teaching new archers or experienced archers, what you have to do is, is you have to, you have to coach them, uh, in the way that the vast majority of shooters are going to become the very best shooter. And, and I don't think, um, for the average bow hunter, because you for the average bow hunter, their accuracy doesn't have to be target level, you know, professional target level accuracy. Their accuracy needs to be good enough to hit the kill zone at 40 yards or whatever. Um, and, and for, for the average bow hunter, they're going to be much better served learning to squeeze through a shot because, so many bow hunters, I, I would have to guess, and I don't know how what the percentage would be, but it's a very high percentage of bow hunters that end up with some sort of target panic issue or some sort of jerking issue um, at some point in their career. And uh, I think you're better off, like my boys, I taught them to shoot. Uh, you know, I gave them the first thing they shot, the first release they ever shot was an old Stanislavski, you know, with no play. Just squeeze through it, squeeze through it, squeeze through it, and they learned to make good shots. And they, they, they've never had issues with the punching. Yep. Yep. Well, I taught Sharon and Harry with, um, with an evolution and that's all they've ever shot. And I mean, Sharon's shot several dozen animals. Uh, Harry's probably shot, he shot a little bit less than that cause he didn't go with us on some trips, but every shot they've ever made has been with a tension style release and, they know no different, but they were also, it was, it was pile drive into their head from day one that this is what you, this is what's acceptable. If your pin's moving around the target, that's acceptable. Like you're fine with that. Let it do that. You're in, mm-hmm. you're in your happy place. Like that's where you want to be. You want to, you know, if you're an archer and your pin's around the bullseye, like that's the great place to be. Like you don't want your time there to be a fraction of a second allow it to be there and just go through your process and, and good things are going to happen. But so many of these other people, you know, what stinks is the majority of the people that learn archery, they're at the discretion of how much time that archery shop has to give that person before they have to start working on a bow for the next customer. And a lot of times, a lot of times they just, you know, they want that person hitting some bullseyes right away, 20 yards. The person's happy. Wow, this, man, I pull back. I hit that dot every time I I punch a trigger at it. I mean, and they're good, and they, they head off, and it's not until all of a sudden they try to, to find those next levels to where they all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, now i got to erase myself back to, like, learning this the proper way to begin with. That's a no, I know they're 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 set up for failure, um, and and that's a you know that's an issue that would be great if it could be addressed. But like you say, uh, you know, it's a time money thing. 
because, you know, the vast majority of people that are going to get into archery, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but a good percentage of the people that get into archery by the first bow, whatever, you know, may not, they want to have instant gratification. They just want to fling arrows. And there aren't that many of them that are become, going to become really serious about it. And uh, so people just want to get in and let them have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it it's it's great up until a point, until the point of them trying to, you know, meet those next levels and start to become more accurate at longer distances or have to battle with pin movement in the wind or someone saying, yeah. okay, closest to center. Like, I, I'm amazed at how many people can shoot great until you say, all right, closest to center. And then all of a sudden, once there's importance on the line, how their shot just instantly changes. Right. Well, I mean, you and I understand that. And that's why with our kids and my wife, you know, they, they didn't get a chance to learn bad habits. Uh, uh, it would be great if, if uh, it would be great if everybody was as smart as us. No, but, you know, it, it'd be great if every kid had a father that or a mother that 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 knew how important that was and when they started they started the right way but you know it's uh it, it's you know like tiger woods kids are going to learn how to golf the right way the first time whereas most kids just go out there and start whacking the ball yep yeah hey have you tried um not to change subjects too fast because that is a good subject but before i forget about it have you seen um some of the new electronic range finding sites have you seen the new garmin site or played around with it you know, I, or? I, I, i've seen it online i haven't actually played with it i didn't go to the ata show this year and so i i didn't get to play with it but i had several reports and it's a very intriguing idea to me the issue that i had and and correct me but i just looked online and i i i may not know all the intricacies of it but the issue i had with it was that the housing wouldn't allow you to shoot very far like my issue was was that you know let's say that let's say you shot it uh, you know made a poor shot at an elk at 40 yards or whatever and you and you just wanted a follow-up shot when he stepped out to 80 and he was you know he needed another arrow what do you do then well yeah there's the thing is there's there's pros and cons to it and um and i've i've actually worked that 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 design was actually that that design and concept was actually bought from someone else um so i i've i've actually seen that for quite a while and here here's here's my 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 problems with it and and i've been this is probably the number one question i'm getting right now and the listen i went by the booth the people at garmin are awesome um garmin makes great products and they took a technology and they and they maximized it so hats off to those guys i don't want to have any negativity to them but here here's my problem i i went to france this year and actually i think i texted you from there i was i was hunting chamois and it just started we got five inches of rain on the mountain one night and the next day, I was trying to range the chamois, and I could not get my rangefinder to work. And I thought, well, my freaking battery's dead. And luckily, I always carry a rangefinder battery in my release pouch on my hip. So I reached in, 
grabbed a new battery and opened the door and went to slide my battery out and literally like water poured out of my rangefinder. The little seal on the the closing mm. thing it just got a little bit offset. So here I am on the mountain. You know, I'm I'm on an expensive hunt. I've got a lot invested and I don't know how far this thing is. You know, luckily Didn't you I, used to shoot through game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, th- that's that's the problem. If you're not doing that every time, that's just you might as well just <laughs> lick your thumb and hold it up in the air when you're when you're up in the French Alps trying to guess a chamois that, by the way, is about half the size of what you think they are. Um, so, th- when you have to rely a hundred percent on electronics in the hunting environment. Um, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of that. So what I don't like about it is one, you know, you have to you have to actually click the button and illuminate your pins or you have to range the object and then it will illuminate a part of that LED strip according to the actual yardage of what you range. And that's if you've 100% had exactly the right torque so that you've perfectly centered almost like a retina-like, retina-lock type image in the center of the lens so that you can actually make sure that that laser is hitting the object that you're ranging with that little light. And then it'll illuminate the pin. I can name dozens of situations where I would have never had that kind of time. Okay, so just to do that, I would never have that time. Um, but then, yeah, you are limited by the length of that LED strip. So like in your situation, or I actually posted um, on my Instagram a couple weeks ago, I posted a, a spot and stalk that I did on a big black bear. I shot this black bear at, you know, under 20 yards. He was feeding in this this big, you know, big field type thing. It was, it was actually like a clear cut. And because he was kind of partially behind this pine tree when I hit him and he went off when he ran off my natural instinct is always to reload an arrow especially if I don't have a hundred percent confirmation where I hit the animal and if the animal gives me a follow-up opportunity I take it and so I naturally just reloaded the arrow and pulled my bow back and the bear actually went up and stopped and he he was shot perfectly I think he probably stopped to to tip over but because I didn't know 100% where that arrow hit, as soon as he stopped, I just put my 60-yard pin on him, let it rip, and it was a perfect double lung shot. I mean, I think both shots were inside of five seconds. There's no way I could have done that with that. There, there's no way I could have done that. I would have had to pull back a second time, nervous, try to align this retina lock type thing so that I'm making sure that the laser that I'm lasing is actually hitting the target, which as you know, if you take a laser and you torque it, you don't have to torque it much. I mean, hardly at all at, at, you know, ground zero to be completely off an elk target at a hundred yards. So, I mean, that is, that is, you're literally almost playing a guessing game. Now there's aspects to it without a doubt are awesome. The having an illuminated single pin in multiple locations like that would be dynamite in a perfect scenario or 
Uh, the other thing that's amazing, the, the thing that's are, the, that are amazing about it is if you laze, like say that situation happened, say you shot an elk at 40 yards and that thing ran out there to 85 and you thought, I'm going to put another one in it. And it ran to a location and you just pulled back and you put that pin on there, ranged it quick and boop, it lit up that next dot and you let one fly and hit it. It'll actually send that exact ranged location to your Garmin watch. So you could literally slumber over there and there see exactly where that elk was standing to see if there's blood on the ground to find your arrow. So, I mean, those aspects are big positives, but when it comes to, when it comes to like real life hunting situations, I just, and maybe it's because of the places that I hunt, but I cannot, I cannot get away with having to not have pins all the time that I can pull back and shoot when I need to, or shoot something that's 35 yards right now that was 27 yards a second ago um mm-hmm. or well know, it's the same it's yeah. the same issue that, that i've always had with people that hunt out west here with the with a single aperture pin and they they have a mover uh you know uh, uh it just it's so time consuming and if the animals move and what are you going to do and that's why i have 20 30 40 50 60 70 and 80 pins i have a ton of pins in my yeah. my housing and it's just like i can pull back and if that animal's walking i go hey you went five yards and and uh use the next pin or whatever and uh and, and go for it so i'm with you well so what's your th- that's a continual question on this podcast and mainly and it's not it's not a question of mine because i know what my feeling is but you know i'm not a big advocate of single pin sites i'm i and and there is a there is a I guess one rule that's kind of doesn't count doesn't apply and that's for new archers like Sharon and Harry I still consider them new archers simply because of the fact they don't shoot every day like people that are in tournament archery and things like that to where they really learn their setup. For me, when I'm hunting with Sharon and her Harry, a lot of times we're hunting in tree stands, we're hunting in blinds, or we're doing spot and stalk where I'm directly with them and I'm over their shoulder ranging to where I could just sit. And and part of the reason why I believe in this, a single pin sight for them, is because they're shooting 40-pound bows. Their arrows aren't very fast. So it's important for them to have their sight set on 23 yards if it's a... If it's a turkey at 23 yards and it's not strutting, you can't shoot it for 20 yards. You're going to hit it through its legs. I mean, you know, an arrow that's going that slow, they need exact yardage. And for someone that doesn't necessarily train a lot, it's nice just to say you have one pin. You know, they can remember it's one pin. But I don't let them shoot anything over 30 yards. They've never shot over 30 yards. If something's standing at 35 yards, I just tell them, yeah, sorry, um, we need to let it get a little closer. But for any other person, having multiple pins is so important. And some of these, like I know the new spot hogs have two pins, but even at that, the number of people that truly know what those two pins mean and what everything between those two pins mean, I would venture to say if I took a hundred people out and said, okay, even though 
that's your 20 yard pin. And I know that on your scale, it tells you that the second pin is 36 yards. Put a bullseye at 28 yards. You show me how to do it. I bet you most of them wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, and and I think, well, I think that you is, need to. You well, know is, is uh, when you're an animal, especially a big animal, you, everything kind of goes blank. That's why I try to keep, I mean, as long as I've been hunting still, you need things extremely simple. Um, you know, and that's why I actually color code a even number pins are red. Uh, that way, and they have been for 20 years. So I know when I pull back, I'm an even number. I don't have to, like, I'm not going to go 10 yards wrong on my pants. Yep. So 20, 40, 60, 80, all red. You know, so I'm not going to mess up 50 and 40. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think so much of that just comes from experience of, not necessarily of being your preference. My my reasoning behind this and what makes it hard for me to argue with people and tell them why is because I can't explain to you how many times I've screwed up because I didn't do it that way. I mean, the me doing it that way is a result of how many times where I'm like, you know what? I needed another freaking pin and I needed to know exactly which one it was. Like I need to know my, you know, my, my green pins are even my red pins are odd. I mean, you know, I need it. I need it to be that way. It's just, you know, because too many times things happen so fast. And this year, whitetail hunting, I was uh, hunting with a, a buddy of mine that had a single pin sight, and I actually had my normal multi pin sight. And this buck came flying in um, because of he was on behind a doe. And, you know, he came to one point, ranged it, and by the time I drew back, that thing turned and came charging right in and it's like if you would add your bow set at 32 yards and that thing came charging into 18 yards are you telling me you would 100 percent know where to hold to make a perfect shot on that animal or are you just guessing and if you're just guessing then is it really ethical why wouldn't you just shoot instinctively i mean you know that's what that's what makes it tough for me to to justify it oh yeah yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I never did understand it, but people do it and they like it. So, yeah. But you know, I think most of the time, the people that I inside uh, are usually people that don't bow hunt that much, or if they do bow hunt, they they tend to you know uh, sit a blind or a tree stand or something like that, where they can have plenty of time to to do what they need to do. But you know, in the West and the kind of animals that you and I hunt, well, you, you, you do a lot of hunting for whitetails, but for me, um, there's just too much going on. There's too many things happening too fast, and the animals are typically moving, and, and I'm moving, and, and uh, it just, uh, you know, it just, a single pin sight's going to, and you hear all the stories where, you know, they forgot to, they forgot to set their sight. They just pulled up and shot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you really need to keep things simple. Yeah. Simple as you can. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, man, I think uh, this was a great podcast. I know that um, you've got something you got to do this afternoon. I've got to, I've actually got to get doing something. You kind of, <laughs> you got to make money. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> cut, you cut my workout a little bit short. I wanted to make sure that we got together every time we end up saying, let's do it the next day. It ends up going to the next day and the next day. So when we said, let's do it in an hour, I, I went and, uh, 
got after it pretty quick. But uh, I'll have to tell you too, I'm a I'm a big advocate, um, and this kind of you inspired me about this too many years ago about um, just the type of the type of um, shape that you can get in for Western style hunting by by riding a bike and me being a taller person, I just never felt, I never felt healthy and I never felt, um, good when I tried to, you know, when I tried to run five or six miles every day, it's just a lot of pounding for someone that's, you know, 230 well, you're pounds. A big guy and not, yeah. You're a big guy. And plus, you know, you played football all that time and, and, you know, I don't care who you are. You, you get thrown around, beat up, and, uh, well, if you know, cause you already have joint problems, even at your young age, uh, you know, your joints just can't handle it. And boy, I tell you what, I used to be a big long distance runner and, uh, I started biking about 15, 20 years ago and oh, my joints are so happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's, um, there's really good things that you can get from interval training, especially with running where you're not necessarily just pounding for long periods of time if you're a bigger person um you know doing some stuff where you're you're more interval interval training with sprints and then having a quick rest sprinting again and you know maybe covering one or two miles you know maybe do a mile warm up and then do a full mile of you know intervals to get to that that next mile i think overall your health is is going to be way way higher is there anything that you would do different in your training like if you could just go back what would you do different? If I'd go back, I would never run. And, and that's a horrible thing to say. But I really believe that uh, running is, I mean, I don't think humans really need to run. <laughs> we got two legs. And, uh, and you know, it just beats up your joints. I don't care who you are. It just beats up your joints eventually. You know, there are people that are genetically much better at it, and they can do it for a long period of time. But most people that were long-distance runners, in their younger years have arthritic problems later on in life. And I, I don't think I would have run. I would have climbed. I still climb mountains. I, I climb mountains uh, and do Stairmaster uh, because I think that's important, you know, to keep those muscles in shape for hunting. However, uh, cycling is so easy on your joints. I mean, you know, my joints were getting pretty bad from my running. And once I started cycling, I can, you know, it used to be when I quit running, uh, I used to run for an hour and, and my joints would be sore that day and the next day. And now I could go ride my bike literally for five hours in a race. And the next day my muscles would be a little sore, but my joints feel fine. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's no good advice, so. especially for the younger. There's so many younger generations that are listening to these podcasts now and man, the information that they're getting between our podcast today and what I did with Pellegrino, I mean, imagine if you and I could have had to being able to listen to to those three people talk for for four hours back when we were trying yeah, to. Fit. Yeah, the problem <laughs> is, is is they all think that we're old and, and stupid. <laughs> They're not going to actually pay attention. I mean, think about yourself when you were twenty years old. Uh, although you did listen, I, I was impressed. You did listen, but uh, you know, you just. It, you know, hopefully, yes, they'll they'll say, hey, you know, I don't need to do those stupid things because those stupid guys already did those things and it didn't work out for them, so it's probably not going to work out for me. But, uh, yeah, I, and, I, and I, with my boys, I've really discouraged them. Well, I, I told them I, 
they could play any sport they wanted, but I, I'd rather they didn't play football, so they didn't. I don't know if it's because I said so, but they just didn't. And I said, hey, I'd rather you not be runners. I'd rather you be cyclists, and they both are. And and I know both your, your both did both your boys make it to uh, to Eagle Scouts. Yep, they did. Oh yeah, both of yeah. them. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. a huge feat. That's awesome. I know you're yeah, really we, yeah. proud of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were. My wife and I have been involved in scouting OG since well, fifteen years, and uh, so. Uh, they had some healthy encouragement from their mom and dad, but they're both good kids and they did it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, man. And, uh, I miss talking to you and can't thank you enough for everything that you've done for me. Oh, well, thanks for having me on anytime, John. I, I, you know, I, I actually, it's interesting. I've done several podcasts and yours is the only one where I kind of forget that we're actually on a podcast. I think of more of his conversation and, and uh, so it's very enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. So many times when people want to, uh, well, especially when they're friends, that the people that I have on here are legitimately people that I trust not putting information out there that could potentially be, you know, I don't know, counterintuitive for people. Yeah. yeah. So, and there's so many times you and I have had conversations that we didn't record where I thought, Man, could that have been good for people if they if we would have recorded it? But sometimes, you know, we just we call and chat about things like that just because. Well, it's you what ought we to just do. call me up and not tell me it's a podcast and just start talking. <laughs> it, it wouldn't that, be any that, different. And that, that way, I would I try to be a little politically correct <laughs> when we're on a podcast. But uh, you know, you don't tell me it's a podcast. You know, you might. You might get a little uh, unsavory oh. language. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you might. You, you might get me naming names. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. I, I think I think uh, I think it's important that that there's a few of us old farts that uh, that maintain some integrity with it at times and don't sling any mud. So uh, I enjoy it, but I appreciate it, man. All right, well, let me know next time. All right, have a good day, man. Appreciate it so much. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com